From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Now there was a street intersection not far from where Joe lived. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites from all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on and then play the best for you each week. He passed it every day, one of those places where nobody bothered to slow down. Today, a mountain of corruption in the city of Chicago. Who here is surprised? And another mountain, Mountain View, California, where rents are so high, even Google employees can't afford it. Stay with us. My hometown of Chicago is famous for a lot of things. Deep dish pizza, Second City, Millennium Park, lots of wind. It's also famous for Al Capone, machine politics, and a little money under the table. You just don't hear about it at the Visitors Bureau. But just in case you had any doubt, a new podcast was born in 2018 called The City. In its first season, a team of investigative reporters dove headlong into Chicago's North Lawndale neighborhood because someone started creating a mountain where a molehill should have been. Here's host Robin Amer. There's this vacant lot on the west side of Chicago. It's about a half dozen miles from Chicago's downtown, what we call the Loop. And this lot is huge. This lot looks to me like it's about a full city block. Like it's, yes, it's, it's a big, big lot. It's it a big, big lot. lot. That's Gladys Woodson and Jacqueline Rodney, who live nearby. And it's now it's pretty overgrown. Like there's full-size trees, there's like prairie grass. So what did it look like when it was when he was operating? It okay. was a mess. It was a mess. I, that's the best I can say for it. I first started visiting this lot, which is in a neighborhood called North Lawndale, after hearing a story about something that happened here. At first he had uh, uh, big 18-wheelers lined up. You know, I just thought, well, hey, somebody just parking their trucks in there. To a guy say, uh, Miss Woodson, come down, look at this. Do you know somebody's dumping over in that lot? I've been reporting in Chicago for more than a decade, and I've reported all kinds of stories about the built environment, about secret tunnels hidden underneath the loop, and about how you replace a train bridge while the train is still running. I've also reported on housing discrimination and predatory lending. So stories about all of the remarkable stuff that gets built in Chicago, but also about how it gets built and about all of the foul and crooked things that people will do when they think nobody's looking. And so the story of what happened on this lot, the story I want to tell you, stunned me despite everything I already knew about Chicago, about how corrupt and ruthless it can be, about how stark the divisions are between black and white, rich and poor, between the people who hoard power and the people who will fight for their fair share. Anytime you see anybody drive over in a vacant lot in a limo, you know it's no good. This story is about a giant illegal dump, six stories high. It was huge mountains, concrete, garbage. Built from the broken pieces of a city in the midst of a so-called renaissance. I thought that downtown, City Hall, would do right by the people. You know, I didn't think they didn't care less about us. 
and built not just by dump trucks and bulldozers and construction cranes, but also by corruption, apathy, and greed. So I said, okay, if a public official came by today and said, you know, I need $500, what would you do? And he reached into his back pocket and he pulled out five $100 bills. The man who built this dump had deep ties to Chicago's criminal underworld. He looked at the owner of the restaurant. He goes, if you don't pay your milk money, you're going to get a pineapple through the window. He profited at the neighborhood's expense. Well, no, all the boys at this fucking table. Let's put it on the table here. I made a lot of money over there. And before he was done, the FBI would be protecting him. Let's start at the beginning. Before the dump trucks came, before the lawsuits and the secret FBI tapes, before the arrests and the president's executive order, before the mountain appeared and then disappeared, along with the guy who put it there, there was Daly. You're listening to Richard M. Daly deliver his inaugural address live on WBBMAM from Orchestra Hall. April 24th, 1989, Chicago's new mayor is sworn into office. It's time to leave behind old setbacks, disappointments, and battles. Because in the campaign for a better Chicago, we're all allies. In the 40 years leading up to his inauguration, Chicago had lost nearly a million people, along with hundreds of thousands of jobs. The new mayor, Daley, wanted to stem that tide. He wanted his Chicago to wake up from its post-industrial slumber and thrive. And we either rise up as one city or we sit back and watch Chicago decline. So Daly began a major push to revamp Chicago's aging downtown, paying special attention to the tourist-friendly destinations in the Loop and along the lakefront. He'd go on to renovate Navy Pier with its 150-foot-tall Ferris wheel, expand McCormick Place, the biggest convention center in North America, and build Millennium Park with its big silver bean and Frank Gehry-designed amphitheater. He also set about rebuilding crucial parts of the city's infrastructure, including its roads and highways. Chicago is ringed by highways named for dead politicians, the Kennedy, the Eisenhower, the Stevenson. Millions of cars and 30 years of wear and tear and ice and salt had worn down these aging roadways. By the spring of 1990, the city was full of workers in hard hats and orange vests, breaking down concrete, jackhammering asphalt, gathering up dirt and gravel, loading it into dump trucks and hauling it away. Law-abiding trucking companies carted this debris to distant landfills. But some trucks headed west. They left behind the skyscrapers of the Loop and traveled over the Chicago River into the city's neighborhoods. They drove through Greektown and what was left of Little Italy, past the University of Illinois and the stadium where the Bulls and the Blackhawks play, past the county hospital, to a vacant lot in North Lawndale, near the home of Gladys Woodson. My first memory was the president of the uh, 4100 block came down and asked for Miss Woodson. And I told him, well, what do you want with her? Miss Woodson was the president of the 4300 block. Together, these block clubs kept eyes on the street and made sure their community was safe. She said, well, I was told 
uh, that she was the president of this block, and if I want anything done or help to do, to contact her because she would fight with me. And I say, well, what are we fighting about? North Lawndale's block clubs banded together to do things like get a new park or keep drug dealers off the corner. That day, they would confront a new challenge. He said, did you not know that it's a dump, a illegal dump over across the street? And I say, no. He said, come on, let's walk down there. He walked her to a vacant lot a block from her home. So what did you see when you went over there with him? Well, first of all, I saw a lot of trucks lined up blocking the view. And behind the truck, there was a, a pile of stuff that was accumulating. And it looked like it was a place that they was going to uh, grind up gravel or something. She watched the trucks roll down the street, belching diesel fumes and kicking up dust. And once the trucks made it to the corner, they would turn and head into the vacant lot, park, tip up their cargo, and dump it. And so when you saw this line of trucks and this pile of rubble, what did you think? I think, oh no, we can't have this over here. This is bad for our health, bad for our children, bad for our houses. You know, it's just going to take our neighborhood down. What Miss Woodson didn't know was that just nine blocks away, there was an even bigger dump. Back in the spring of 1990, if you'd walked out Miss Woodson's front door, past the vacant lot where she saw the dumping, past the train tracks, past convenience stores and gas stations and storefront churches, you'd get to Roosevelt Road and another vacant lot. This one as big as 13 football fields, or half the size of the Pentagon. And this one was across the street from Sumner Elementary School, where Dolores Robinson taught eighth grade math. My classroom became room 114, right next to the office. It was on ground level, so I would open the windows in the morning, and you can hear and see. I kept hearing these trucks, these dump trucks. They were the same trucks Miss Woodson had seen, And they were dumping here, too. There was bricks and stones and concrete and, you know, uh, iron and just all kinds of construction debris. The average dump truck can haul up to 24 tons of stuff. And each new truck that came into the lot would add to the pile. It started to grow. It started to get like a little bump and then a little hill, but I could see a mountain growing. Miss Robinson had been at Sumner Elementary for more than 20 years. She'd arrived in North Lawndale soon after it changed from a white neighborhood to an almost entirely black one. 100,000 people lived in North Lawndale then. Factory jobs were abundant, and people walked to work at Zenith and Sunbeam and Sears and Roebuck. Back then, there'd also been an enormous tobacco factory across the street from the school. That building covered blocks. It was a monstrosity of, of, of a property. But during Miss Robinson's first decade at Sumner, North Lawndale lost 80% of its manufacturing jobs and a third of its residents. Companies either closed up shop or moved out to the suburbs, and along with those departures, attention and resources from the city seemed to disappear. In segregated Chicago, North Lawndale felt abandoned by the business community and the city. 
1973, the tobacco company moved to the suburbs and left its building behind. It was just left there. And within a matter of a few years, it became hollow. You know, the breaking out the windows and taking of fence or iron and scrap. And, and, and slowly but surely, it deteriorated to an eyesore. It was just, uh, it was horrible. Neighborhood kids called it ghost town. So I'm a classroom teacher, and my kids now, I'm, I'm predominantly eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade. I said, guys, don't go over across the street to them. Oh, Ms. Robinson, we go through there all the time. What? Yeah, we go over there all the time. It's fun going in and out the halls. I said, it's dangerous. You can be hurt. No, we're, we're cool. We're okay. Ms. Robinson once described herself to me as five feet tall in sandals, smaller than many of her eighth grade students. But still, she saw herself as their protector. I said, I'm going to be looking out this window. I better not see one of you, my students, come out of that building. If I see you going in and out that vacant building, you're going to be in trouble with me. I said, and it's because I love you. It's because I care. I don't want you hurt. But she later heard a story about someone who did get hurt. Ms. Robinson remembers him as a boy, 12 or 13, who fell three stories from a fire escape. It was one of the ladders that you come down. He was on one of those rotten, it had rotten and, and, and uh, rusted. It swung and it broke and he fell. And he was, he was seriously injured. Miss Robinson thought of him when she looked out her classroom window that spring day and saw the trucks arrive. She and others had pushed for years to have that factory torn down. And when it finally was, in the mid-80s, it was a victory a threat to her students, neutralized. But now a new threat, a new form of blight, was coming to take its place. I started to worry about what is over there and how is it affecting the environment of these kids over here. I said, this is so dangerous for our babies. How could someone set up an illegal dump across the street from a school and houses and a church I want you to picture a dump truck pulling up outside your door and dropping 24 tons of busted concrete and rusted rebar and bricks and dirt and sand and then driving away. Then another truck comes and then another. Imagine this pile growing taller than a child, then taller than you. What would you do to stop it? Where would you go for help? Ms. Woodson, the block club president, had lived in a historic Greystone since 1970. She'd bought the house after moving to Chicago from her tiny rural hometown of Vance, Mississippi. And in some ways, Chicago couldn't be more different from Vance, which didn't even have electric lights. But for Ms. Woodson, her block in North Lawndale was also like a small town. She knew all the neighborhood kids. And I knew they mama, they mama. And, you know, we just sort of grew together. Ms. Woodson and her husband, L.C., had raised their kids and grandkids there. And as president of her block, it was on her to protect it. You just don't let nobody come in and just take away your livelihood. So she and her neighbors started staking out the lot to see if they could figure out how to stop the dumping. And as they did, they saw that the trucks kept coming by day and also in the dead of night. We have come out here like 1, 2 o'clock at night 
to watch the trucks go in and take down license plates number. At one and two o'clock in the morning? in the morning and we used to meet them up here because we figured if we can get the license plate number we can turn them over to the police so what we did we started getting off getting license plate number and what we found he had one set of plate on the front and a different set of plate on the back it seemed really suspicious and that was before they saw the man in charge And any time you see anybody drive over in a vacant lot in a limo, you know it's no good. Oh, my gosh. What did you think was happening back there when you saw him drive up in a limo? I just thought he was, uh, I don't know, game banger or something or other. You know, I didn't know what to think. The man in the limo was a heavyset white guy with a gruff voice and a receding hairline. His name was John Christopher. And he wasn't just dumping debris in North Lawndale. He was laying bare the city's ugliest divisions and its starkest divides. Okay, this is a letter that the Southwest United Block Club Council wrote to our, well, we wrote a lot of peoples. Ms. Woodson and her neighbors didn't know who John Christopher was yet but their neighborhood had already been overrun by trucks and debris, and it seemed like the damage could soon be permanent. So following their stakeout, Miss Woodson and 20 of her fellow block club presidents crammed into her living room. Anyone who couldn't fit on the cream-colored sofa spilled into the dining room or sat on the plush carpeted floor. The presidents of the 1500 block and the 4300 block were there, representatives from around the neighborhood. Together, this coalition drafted a letter. We, the Southwest, Lundell United Block Club councils are requesting that you intercede for us in protesting the installation of, a, of the concrete recycling operation, which is... They sent the letter to the zoning board and the water department and the Department of Streets and Sanitation. They sent the letter to their aldermen, which is what we call city council members in Chicago. They sent it to the mayor and a member of Congress. We wrote to everybody from who's who to who's that. And how optimistic were you, like, in those first few weeks and months that you could deal with this problem and make it go away? Well, I thought once we contact all of these peoples and they found out what was going on, that somebody would stop it. Ms. Woodson was right, at least at first. In June 1990, about a month after receiving her letters, the city finally sent an inspector to check out the lots. And when he got there, the inspector saw piles of debris he'd later describe as taller than you and I, more than six feet tall already. So the inspector called his boss and said, we've got a problem. People who were working as inspectors in the city uh, came, called me up and said, we've got this huge amount of material building up in this particular site. This is the inspector's boss, a city lawyer named Henry Henderson, who specialized in environmental issues. It was a huge mountain, and it was across the street from a school. Um, so we got in our cars and went out to visit it, and it was, this is, this is gigantic, a gigantic issue. Henry Henderson had learned that John Christopher, the guy Ms. Woodson saw in the limo, was actually running the dumps. So Henderson called Christopher into his office for a meeting. Was that the first time that you had met with him? Yes. 
what did he look like? How did he speak? What, what impression did he leave on you? He's a very, very large person. Um, he had one of these incredibly colorful sweaters on, you know? Well, like a Bill Cosby dad sweater? It, it, kind of like that, yeah. And um, I was struck by the fact that it looked like he had his nails done. Going into this meeting, Henderson thought he could demand that John Christopher stop and that he would. But John Christopher had permits that he'd gotten from the city to operate a rock crusher, a giant machine that pulverizes concrete into gravel, which can then be sold back to construction companies to use in their building projects. That was his story about what he was doing. And um, he's particularly aiming at this is construction debris that can be recycled and I want to crush it. And the material is, has value. So I'm, I'm a recycler and I'm a beautifier. That was his uh, claim as to what, what his activities were about. John Christopher was dumping thousands of tons of construction waste across the street from a school and people's homes and businesses. But the way he put it to Henderson, he was helping North Lawndale. You'll hear a lot about John Christopher in this story, but you won't hear from him, at least not yet. I've spent years looking for him, and if he is still alive, he's likely living under a new name. But I'll get into that later. We did talk to someone who did business with John Christopher during this time. This source worked for another local construction company that actually did recycle concrete as part of its business. He didn't want to be named because he wasn't authorized to talk to us, and he was afraid of losing his job. He told us that John Christopher owed people money. And we didn't hear it from just this guy. Not long after John Christopher started dumping in North Lawndale, another local construction company sued him in county court, alleging that he owed them nearly $80,000. Then, one day, around the same time, our source gets a call from John Christopher, who says, meet me in North Lawndale. So he drives to the lot, and he sees this dump. And at first, he's confused. But then, John Christopher explains... This was how he was going to pay this guy's company back. See, construction companies usually pay to dump in legal, permitted landfills. John Christopher was offering up his lots in North Lawndale as a cheaper alternative. A legal dump charges, say, $150 a load. John Christopher was asking for as little as $10 a load, a figure he'd later admit to in court. He'd allow this guy to dump for cheaper than he would at a real landfill, and gradually make up what he owed. John Christopher pitched it as a win-win. He would repay his debts, and the source's company would save a bunch of money by dumping on his sites illegally. And the more all these companies dumped in North Lawndale, the more money John Christopher would make, and the more these construction companies would save. But this guy wanted nothing to do with John Christopher. When he looked around, he saw piles of stuff everywhere way more than anyone could reasonably crush. And there was stuff that couldn't be crushed. Sand, dirt, and rebar. Our source told us that guys like John Christopher give rock crushing a bad name. As the spring of 1990 turned into summer, despite complaints from neighbors and the letter-writing campaign, and the visits from inspectors, and the meeting with city lawyers, it became clear that John Christopher was not going to stop dumping in North Lawndale. The noise and the dust had gotten worse. 
Some of Miss Woodson's elderly neighbors relied on oxygen tanks, and the dust was making it harder for them to breathe. So a group of us, we walked over there to talk to John Christopher, and we asked him, you know, could he uh, stop grinding or whatever he was doing over there? He told us he could do whatever he pleased. And we told him, well, okay, we'll go to court. And he said, if you do go to court, uh, when I leave, I'm going to leave everything just like it is now. He was very arrogant. When a city gets rebuilt, it puts its new skyscrapers and parks and monuments front and center. It doesn't always want you to see how those things got built or who got hurt in the process. And so you go, you go over, you, you meet this guy for the first time, you tell him, hey, we have breathing problems, we have senior citizens, we've got kids, and his response is basically... So, that was his response, so... So how did you feel after that confrontation? Let's get him. Let's go to court. That was the first of 10 episodes of The City, produced by Wilson Sayre, Jenny Casas, and Robin Amer for USA Today and Wondery. For a link to the rest of the series, check out our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. So tell us where we are right now. This is uh, North Bayshore. Uh, we are parked in a parking lot on Google at an undisclosed location. Uh, you know, Google doesn't endorse people living in cars or living on campus. They would rather we go get an apartment somewhere. Uh, so, you know, you sort of are at the good graces of them not telling you to leave. Uh, the last Google employee who talked to a journalist about his living in a van on work was kicked out and forced to move. And, you know, the same thing could happen to me. Well, the good news is you haven't given me your name yet. <laughs> Google headquarters is famous for its perks. Free gyms, free daycare, free food, to name a few. Nice work if you can get it, right? Well, maybe. Rent near the Google campus, or Googleplex as they like to call it, is so high that even with all those free services, some employees still can't afford a place to live nearby. David Boyer, host of the podcast The Intersection, spent 18 months at the corner of Shoreline and Space Parkway in Mountain View, California, a corner of Googleville some people now call home. Mind if I grab a drink real of quick? Of course. Would you like one? I would love one. Uh, I don't know where you want to talk. To. This is perfect, actually, because okay. it's great to be kind of close. confined. Yeah. I have a seat then. You can throw this stuff out of the way. Okay. So let's start like this. My name is Todd Berkebile. I am 42. I am a software engineer at Google. Uh, I've been working there for about five years, and I live in an RV in North Bayshore. At some point, I'll ask you for a tour, but we'll get there. You can kind of do that without even getting up. <laughs> okay. All the way to the back, you can see my very messy bedroom. Then it smells bad. Todd's Winnebago is 32 feet long. Inside, it's different tones of beige and gray and cream. And it's surprisingly spacious and homey. The bathroom. This is my den. There's a kitchen, living room, dining room. You know, I have everything that you have in your house, just a little bit smaller and closer to the office. 
Todd didn't plan to turn 40 in an RV in a parking lot at his job. It just kind of crept up on him. You see, back in 2009, he was living in a big house filled with lots of stuff in North Carolina. Then his startup went bust, and rather than jump back in, he bought this $60,000 deluxe RV and traveled the country. After a couple of years and 120,000 miles, he got a job offer at Google working in artificial intelligence, basically his dream job. And that's when he experienced that wonderful Bay Area rite of passage, housing sticker shock. I initially assumed I would buy a house locally, but in evaluating the housing market at that time, I assumed that the market would either level off or decline a bit. Plus, I was very comfortable living in my RV. I mean, I'd been doing it, you know, for almost two years at that point. And so I just decided that, you know, stay in the RV. Uh, when the housing market cools off, you know, I'll buy a house. But now, all those overpriced houses from 2011 have literally doubled in price since then. <laughs> Actually, according to Zillow, the median house price in Mountain View has more than doubled since 2011, from $715,000 to a cool $1.6 million. You know, I've saved a lot of money. I could probably still afford to buy one. Uh, but now they look like an even worse investment. <laughs> you know, if I'd known uh, the future, I would have bought when I moved here and uh, gone down a more traditional path. And without his Google badge and all the perks that come with it, he may have opted for that path a long time ago. It does help to have nearby easy access to uh, flushing toilets and showers. Uh, so the advantage of being on campus here we have 30-some gyms, uh, we have laundry room facilities, uh, all meals are provided during the week. Uh, there are a number of places on campus that I consider my secondary living rooms. There's a building that has a really nice TV room with like a, I don't know, 12-foot screen that you can just plug your uh, computer into and watch Hulu or Netflix or YouTube or whatever. Todd's RV is completely paid off so his housing costs are almost non-existent. Because I have access to food at my employer, I don't run the generator, I don't even keep the refrigerator turned on. So about once a month, I empty the toilet tank and that costs, I think it's $15. The way I see it is the amount I save every month on rent is basically a round trip airplane ticket anywhere in the world, every month. I just got back from Thailand, uh, I'm going to Cuba, to Brazil, further away destinations uh, are easily affordable when you don't have a mortgage. <laughs> Is there anything you don't like about this? Dating can be difficult when you uh, choose to live abnormally. Uh, you definitely limit your options in terms of who would be open to that. Most of my friends say that I'm crazy to consider living in, in an RV as a, as a litmus test for finding a free spirit to, uh, to uh, be compatible with me. I think the, the perfect person for me wouldn't care, but it just is one more thing making it hard to find that perfect match. <laughs> you know, I don't consider myself uh, a crusader for urban homelessness. Uh, <laughs> I just see this as a creative solution to the ridiculous Bay housing situation. I have the luxury of choosing whether or not to live like this. 
you know, I, I worry about, you know, the people parked on the street getting harassed by Mountain View police. They don't have the ability to register with the Google card database. So I, I you know, I worry more about them. Many of the folks who can't get their license plates on Google's list park their vehicles on Space Parkway, 100 feet or so from Todd's RV. The scene on this street is a study in contrast. Groups of Googlers, many in their 20s, some making upwards of $200,000, walk past the same beat-up RVs and vans day after day. So what's their take on the situation? I haven't even noticed them, to be honest. Yeah, didn't notice them. No, I don't know anything about them. Yeah, I see them here. Yeah, yeah, they're here all the time, but yeah. uh, I think some people probably live in them. They don't necessarily look like Google employees to me. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, rent in Mountain View is expensive and people are just trying to get by, so. One of the vehicles that these folks pass is a white van circa 1985. It's easy to walk right past and not even notice it. What's up, boss? But on the day I walk by, the back door is slid wide open and there's a man in the back seat watching Netflix. I just bought the van recently, about uh, about a month ago. Right now, this is my home, period. My name is George Rainey. I am 32. I lived in the Bay Area all my life. I have a job, I'm a chef, I'm married, I got two kids, I got a five-year-old son, I got a three-month-old daughter. I've been with my wife eight years, I've been, uh, we've been married three. But for the time being, he's not living with them. I lived a certain lifestyle, you know, that, uh, that caused some, um, some issues in my family where it dictates that I be away from him for, for a amount of time. He's living in this van, temporarily, because he and his family cannot afford two rents. Man, right now where my wife is staying with our kids, it's 1,700 bucks for one bedroom. And the van was actually 1,200 bucks. George knew people lived in vehicles on Space Parkway because he often visits his grandmother, who lives in the Santiago Villa Mobile Home Park, just a few hundred feet away. I don't want to tell my, my grandma because it adds stress. She would. Let me come live in the house, but that's not what I'm, that's not the, the path I'm on right now. What was night one like? You know, uh, night one was like a, you know, a cabin trip. Then day two was uh, tiring. Day three became like, okay, it's another day, you know, prepare yourself, you work tomorrow. You know, not to, not to get down on myself. You know, not to, not to say that, you know, um, I'm nobody or make this, beat, beat myself up over it. Um, it's been a very humbling experience. I got a lot of respect for people who uh, live in their vehicles and, 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 and homeless. Um, it, it's not easy. What's not easy? Part? You know, just, you know, having to go use a bathroom, uh, eating out of cans, you know what I'm saying, like stuff like that. You know, I used to look down on them. But now I'm in a situation to where I'm living amongst them. You know, I look at it differently, man. You know, this is a way of life. Just because you may see somebody in a van or in a, off in a camper somewhere, you never know what the real reason behind it is. When you look forward a month, a year, what's the ideal? Ideal, man, I'm, I'm gonna be doing what I was doing before I put myself in this situation. Work and take care of my family. Thanks, sir. No problem. Bye, George. Bye-bye. For George, the situation may be temporary, but for others, there seem to be few obvious ways up and out. So what should a relatively wealthy city do when a regional housing crisis forces some of its residents to live in vehicles? 
I head a couple of miles south to City Hall to get a sense of what Mountain View is doing. There I meet then-Mayor Pat Showalter, who has really pushed the city to come up with some solutions. What we have to deal with in Mountain View are really the perils of prosperity. And the policies that we've had over the last 40 years to um, bring more jobs to our towns and, and, and encourage growth have really had the unintended consequences of making housing costs very, very high, which in turn causes some people to be displaced and become homeless. And personally, I think it's an ethical issue. I mean, clearly, if you make a mess, it's your job to clean it up, right? It's our responsibility to, to work hard to, to um, fix the things that our policies have created. In fact, the city worked with a local homeless organization to survey people living in vehicles throughout Mountain View. We've had about six or seven months of, of really intensive investigation. And one of the things that we discovered was that 71% of them live on less than $1,000 a month. That is poor in the Bay Area. So even though, you know, there are people that, um, that are just choosing to do this um, to save money or for the adventure of it, the vast majority of those people are really poor. Well, what can we do to help those poor people, to help get them uh, the services they need and into better housing? And that's what the city council is trying to figure out this evening. And from her place at the center of the dais, the mayor runs the council's weekly meeting and moderates the conversation. Now we're at item 7.1, an update on our efforts related to homeless residents living in vehicles. Um, we're going to have a staff presentation and hear what you have to say. A staff member shares the results from the survey of people living in their vehicles. 60% identify as being, quote, from Mountain View. More than half have jobs, and a third have been living in a vehicle for more than two years. Several policy directions and options for services are outlined. Then the public has a chance to weigh in. As usual, this is where it gets interesting. Come forward. Tell us your name. My name's Chris Keller. I live on Latham Street, which has seen upwards of uh, two dozen of these vehicles with, with people in them, including over a dozen full-size Winnebago's. This has been going on for three years. I can put up with the odd person sleeping in their station wagon or their car or their small vehicle, but these Winnebago's are a menace, and they take up 50% of the parking on the block, and therefore we can't even park in front of our own homes anymore. Uh, I'm sorry if I sound frustrated, but I'm, this is not a recent issue. And when the warm weather hits and the dozens of Winnebago's come again, I really hope you have something better than outreach programs to solve the problem. Next speaker. Hi, I'm Marcy Chrislieb. I have a job. I pay taxes. I am a registered voter. I am educated. I am homeless, and there is no place for me to go. I am lucky that I have an RV to live in, so I don't have to sleep in the open. And unfortunately, there's no place for me to park that RV because there's only one RV park on the peninsula and only two on the East Bay. And none of them will let me park my RV there because there is a hundred plus waiting list hundred other people waiting to pay $1,600 a month 
to park their RV where they can get services because all of the RV parks have been shut down because people who already have theirs don't want to see us. And that's sad. Thanks for coming. Next speaker. Uh, buenas noches. Mi nombre es Inocente Saldívar. Uh, vengo aquí porque este, soy residente aquí de Montenvío. Tengo 26 años viviendo en esta ciudad. My name is Inocente Saldívar, and I have been a Montenvío resident for the last 26 years. Um, I need to work hard, and I don't want to uh, pay all the money that I uh, get just to the renters because it's uh, a lot of money. I really prefer to live in the RVs with my family because at least I can feed them. I miss work today in order to come and express my feelings. Please just find a solution uh, for my, myself and many other families in the same situation that I am. Thank you for um, taking time off from work to come talk to us. In the end, the council approved a $200,000 budget to provide services to people living in vehicles. That includes a place to dump waste, wash clothes, shower, as well as 24-hour access to a bathroom. It will take several months to get these programs in place. In the meantime, I'm curious how policy currently plays out on the streets. I head back to the intersection and meet the man who's writing the police department's official approach to vehicle dwellers. Hi, Saul. David, nice to meet you. My name is Saul Jaeger, and I'm a lieutenant with the Mountain View Police Department. So let's drive down a little bit so that we're kind of in the midst of some of the vehicles. Oh, you know what, though? You do have to throw your seatbelt on. Oh, safety's not right. Well, it is. <laughs> so yeah, as you drive down Space Parkway, uh, you'll notice that there's um, several RVs uh, and other vehicles that maybe you didn't even notice that people are living in as well. but. From a police perspective, if you don't mind me pulling over for a second, um, a lot of this is not crime-driven, right? We're, we're, we're not seeing drug dealers living in RVs or prostitution houses being run out of RVs. Um, we're seeing people that may have mental health issues. Um, we're seeing people that were on the edge of homelessness or maybe just over the edge of homelessness. For Mountain View, the approach we take, we're looking to help. We're not looking to tow somebody's vehicle and cause more problems or write a bunch of tickets and then they're going to end up probably having warrants because they don't have the money necessarily to pay for it because that's why they're in an RV in the first place. Really, the bottom line is right now, the way that the laws are written, if somebody wants to live in their vehicle, as long as they're within compliance, so the vehicle is insured, it's registered correctly and it's in good working order and not leaking anything, and they're not drinking and causing a nuisance or blocking a sideway or a sidewalk or a driveway, um, and they move their vehicle every 72 hours, then they're okay. We don't, at the 73rd hour, come out here with a tow truck and tow the vehicle. Um, I know that's probably not the best thing to say publicly, but that's the truth behind it. Uh, basically, the person would be contacted several times and offered lots of services to try to get them help as, as best as we can. But sometimes these vehicles are not roadworthy. Sometimes they don't run. Sometimes the folks living in them don't even have the key because they're not the owner of the vehicle. They're getting into this sort of Airbnb thing where somebody will buy an RV and then rent it out to two or three people, you know, per month. So you have, you know, fairly high rents here. That's a cheap way to go. So when I see a vehicle that I believe somebody's sleeping in, um, 
you're in a quandary because I understand the plight and it, and it sucks. You know, there has to be some compassion. Something that I'm very proud of for Mountain View is that we're not trying to just band-aid the solution and squeeze these people into other areas so that they're not in Mountain View anymore. We're actually trying to get to the bottom of the problem. And there's the rub. At the bottom, it's not a single problem, but a web that includes regional housing issues, ingrained poverty, mental and physical health problems, immigration status, as well as personal situations and preferences. It's a long, thorny list for a city to tackle. Until then, people need to live somewhere. A few hundred feet away from where the lieutenant drops me off, there's a 23-foot towable trailer. It's an off-white, corrugated metal box with 80s-style racing stripes. I spot an older woman with short gray hair on the roof. As I approach, I realize that she's on a ladder mid-task, and I have to ask. What are you doing right now? I'm trying to seal this. I just... Let's wait till you come on down. We're, we're on now. Oh, we're on. I'm Roxanne. I'm 61 years old, and I'm living here on Space Park in a travel trailer. Can I ask what you do? <laughs> I drive the commuter, shuttles, buses. I would say the majority of people that sleep in their cars on the street, they have jobs. We all work at the same place. I don't know if I can say it, but, but we all work at Google. We can't say we work for Google. My company is contracted, so. Rosie, it's okay. No it's, bark. It's okay. So I've been here going on five years. And so when I started working up here, I was commuting back and forth from Stockton. From here to Stockton, it's about 80 miles. And I was working a split, so I didn't get home until 10 at night, and I'd leave at 4 in the morning. And see, I have two little dogs. I wanted my dogs with me. So then I talked to a couple of guys at work, and they were sleeping in their cars. I thought, well, that won't work. So then I found a really cheap motorhome, and I bought it, and I came up here, and and I was really scared because I'd never done that before. <laughs> Back then, there were just a few people living in RVs in this area. Luckily, one of them took Roxanne under his wing. And so he showed me all the ins and outs, you know. He said, you need a generator, you need, this is what you do to live in an RV. Roxanne lived in that RV on the street for a couple of years. Then a year and a half ago, she moved into a parking lot on Google's campus, just like Todd. But a few months ago, she was asked to leave. Before that, I had security. They'd come and talk to my dogs, and, you know, I never had any problem. Then security one day knocked on the window and said, you can't, you can't be parking here, and they sent a letter to my uh, employer. My employer said, are you, are you staying there? I said, yeah, because you told me I could. <laughs> and apparently, I guess, Google said no. It's liability things. So I had to come back on the street. And that presented another problem. Her RV couldn't pass a smog test. So when it came time to renew, she couldn't get it registered. She worried that if she parked it on the street, she would get ticketed or it would be impounded. So she sold it. And a few weeks ago, she bought this used trailer, which she attaches to her silver pickup. Today, she's trying to seal the trailer's leaking roof. But that's just the beginning. Well, I tore out the whole front front end because there was water leaking in the window and then I got to tear the back end out because there's water damage there. But I'm going to do one side first. It'll be all right because really I don't know things are not cheap around here. How much did you pay can I ask? 
I paid three thousand. Three thousand seemed to be pretty cheap for travel trailer. So it's got new tires and it's got some good things on it. Brand new water heater and a couple other stuff. So um, this is gonna sound like a crazy question. Are you happy? Yeah, I am happy. I'm very happy. It's just easy. It's convenient. It really is. I don't fight the traffic as much as I used to and less stressful. And I can save money. I mean, that's a lot of the reason I stay here because I can't afford the rent. I can't. It gives me a life. And it's interesting. <laughs> but Roxanne's stay may not last as long as she and the rest of the people parking here would like. Pretty soon, they'll have to find a new spot. This block is likely to become one big no-parking zone when construction begins on a new hotel and much-needed housing. That new housing has caught the eye of the RV dweller we met earlier, Google engineer Todd Berkebile. That's actually a very exciting option for me. Uh, you know, a townhouse or a condo, walking, biking distance to my office. That'd be great. But as it turns out, Todd might not be moving alone. It's been almost nine months since our last conversation, and I run into him and his friends at the Sports Page Bar that's right on the corner. They meet here every Tuesday night to play beach volleyball. What are you recording for? Audio documentary. Nice. On this corner. Oh. You know, there's all sorts of plans for the future. Yeah. Living in RVs. Todd lives in his RV in the red shirt. I interviewed him. For that, this? Yes. That's my dude right there. Get the fuck out of yeah. here. He is fucking awesome. So how long? Six months. So like time. nine months ago. You know, he wanted to be in a relationship. And his friends were like, you can't make your RV a litmus test. It's a great litmus test. Why? Because, well, like, we came to volleyball one night, and he's like, do you want to come back and see my place? And I was like, sure. And he told me he had an RV. He didn't tell me he lived in an RV. And so we get there, and I was like, oh, my God, you just got so much hotter. And he was like, why? I was like, I like small spaces. One, and two, you're not spending all of your money on a place. I'm like totally like ready to cry. Yeah, we're pretty cute together. And I've never had that before, but he's awesome. And I'm awesome, and we're awesome together. I'm almost entirely cute. Todd, do you remember David? Hi, David. <laughs> do you remember interviewing with him? You're right! He interviewed you pre-me. I know. This is Amy. She puts up with my eccentric lifestyle. No, I love it. I love it. I'm like... See? You just got to find the person you're meant to find. There's a wedding. I'm coming. Okay. Okay. My work here is done. That was Homeless in Googleville produced by David Boyer for the podcast The Intersection from KALW. After making this story, David lost track of both Roxanne and George. Their vehicles are no longer on Space Parkway, which is now apparently a massive construction site. And Todd and Amy, well, the couple moved into an upgraded RV and they did get married last year in Antarctica. And they just returned from a two-week trip to Egypt and Jordan, which Todd says, quote, we could only afford due to our lifestyle. Doors closing. Doors open on the left and late. Transfer to orange and pink line trains and late.
No matter what city you're in, getting around is always a thing. A thing that requires planning, money, and time. Unless, like producer Katie Mingle, you like to just get up and go. It's summer in Chicago. The pavement soaks up the heat and radiates it back. The people absorb it and they sweat and grow hot like little embers. It's 2 p.m., the hottest time of day, and I'm making my way into the basement to get my bike. On 18th Street in Pilsen, on the southwest side of Chicago, the ice cream truck searches out new customers. The stores open their doors and windows. It smells like roasting chickens. I bike. Past the tamale man, the CD store, the bus stop where tomorrow morning I will stand and wait in the relative cool of the dawn. And look, I'm running into my brother I haven't seen in a long time. The bridge over Chinatown is the one hill in an all-flat bike ride. Downtown Chicago shimmers in the distance. There is a festival by the river, and a little further down, men play softball in a cloud of orange dust. There you go. I ride. The sun beats on my face, but I'm getting closer. Closer. And finally, I am here, the lake. This city, Chicago, it runs and stretches for so long and then halts. The lake says, this is the end of your line, city. You may go no further. The lake sits patiently next to the buildings, showing off its various shades of blue and quietly reminding us that all summer long, even on the hottest days, it is cool. The perfect temperature for a swim. That was Riding Through the Summer by Katie Mangle, former producer of ReSound. She's now the senior producer of the podcast 99% Invisible.
You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Juan Pablo Ramirez-Franco is our production intern. The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough.